This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Now let's start this, Rico, with something we can all agree on. We can all say it in unison. I hate the effing Braves. Do, do we all agree with that? I mean, everything about the Atlanta Braves. And I know that after the late 90s, early 2000s, maybe the hatred kind of dimmed a little bit. You almost forgot about the Atlanta Braves. The Mets and the Braves were two division rivals, but they were really like two ships passing each other in the night. But over the last couple of years, the hatred is back. And, and even over the weekend, as the Atlanta Braves were just destroying us, taking our soul, shoving it down our throat, every imaginable description you can come up with. I still walked into City Field on Sunday night, my first Met game at City in a couple of weeks, aching for a win. I got to be honest with you, aching for a win because I hate this freaking team. I hate the Braves. I hate Ozzie Albies. Ozzie Albies after the doubleheader sweep, and I forget exactly what he said, but essentially was, oh, we love beating the Mets. We can't stand the Mets. So Bobby Cox may not be in that managerial office anymore. Greg Maddox may not be getting strikes six inches off the plate anymore. Chipper Jones may not be telling Met fans to put their Yankee hats on anymore. The names may have changed, but... God, I hate everybody. everything about the Braves I hate. I hate looking at Matt Olson. Like, just his face bothers me. And Matt Olson is new to this. I mean, he's only been a Brave for what feels like 30 seconds, but how many times has he hit 500-foot home runs against us? So I just want to get that out of the way, that as irrelevant as these games may be to a lot of Met fans, we may be more focused on the draft and, hey, can they finish with a top, bottom six record? Can they win the lottery? All the, you know, the factors in that. I still look at Mets Braves, and I want to win. In this series up until Sunday night, and really even including Sunday because it was a lucky win, it was just a disaster. Everything about it. After they win two out of three against a quality Cubs team, my hope was, all right, they lost five out of six against Atlanta earlier this season. The sweep is really what derailed everything. Going back to June, they lost two out of three to them earlier this season. They were one in five against the Braves. I sat down Friday night on the beach of Oak Island, North Carolina, and I said to myself, can we beat this team a couple times? I'm I'm not looking to sweep the Atlanta Braves. I know that's unrealistic, but can we go out there and punch them in the face a little bit? Can we do that? And everything about that first game, everything about that first game 
was what's wrong with the Mets this season and what's been wrong against the Mets against the Braves for what seems like forever. You are given 150,000 opportunities against the crappy Charlie Morton, a guy you should be motivated to kick the ass of because he helped derail this season by drilling Pete Alonso back in that series in June. He walks two guys in the first inning. They can't score a run because Daniel Vogelback exists and has to play every freaking day. You get two on and nobody out in the second inning. You get bases loaded two out in the second inning, and you get nothing. You get a leadoff walk by Morton in the fourth inning. You get nothing. I mean, Charlie Morton walked seven guys in five innings, and the Mets couldn't do anything. They left 117 people on base Friday. It was a historical performance. I think Gary Cohen said it in game one of the doubleheader, that when you count the amount of base runners the Mets had over nine innings on Friday night against Atlanta, and then remind yourself that they couldn't score one effing run, that was the definition of ineptitude. And when you think about why the Mets have failed this season, how the Mets collapsed in 2021, the Mets issues even in that weird 2020 season, it always seems to come back to leaving a million people on base and not being able to get the big hit. And what made Friday so frustrating is that, you know, Tyler McGill's getting through a little bit of trouble. It's a 0-0 game. The Braves score three runs. Now it's 3 nothing. And really because of their bad defense. I mean, how bad was their defense in the fourth inning of this game? You got, who was playing center field? I think that was Rafael Ortega that night. I'm trying to remember because they had a scratch in their lineup. Lindor came out. Actually, it may have been Nimmo. No, because Nimmo got scratched. I forget who got scratched. Didn't they have like a bunch of guys get scratched on Friday? Brandon Nimmo. No, no, it was just Lindor on Friday. And Nimmo's been dealing with this, uh, whatever, the, the, the balls issue, the groin issue, whatever it is. Yeah to where he's been moved off center field and he's been playing left field recently. But Lindor gets scratched. And the Met defense, it was Nimmo. That's who it was. Brandon Nimmo, who's had a very bad year defensively in center field. I'd actually say a weird year defensively. Because earlier this season, he made a lot of really big defensive plays, kind of building off last year. Remember that great catch against the Dodgers? He had the drop, I think, against the Phillies. He had a miscue against the Yankees, and he commits a big error in the fourth inning that took Tyler McGill's performance and flushed it down the toilet. But the point was, they couldn't score a freaking run. And that's with Charlie Morton giving them 115 base runners. And what was really pathetic about Friday and pissed me off about Friday, and I hate to go back to this one guy, because this one guy should not be in our lives anymore better not be in our lives next season. And I remember at the beginning of the year, believing that this guy could at least give the Mets some production against right-handed pitching. And boy, was I wrong about that. And that's Daniel Vogelback. Friday night, in a lot of ways, was the Daniel Vogelback game. Two on, two out, first inning, strikeout. Two on, one out, third inning, strikeout. Fifth inning, strikeout. Two on, two out, seventh inning, line out to right field, and then fittingly ends the game by striking out and looking, completing the golden sombrero and completing, I mean, really, of all the Vogelbackian performances we've seen this year, in a lot of ways, Friday night was his night. He got booed by this crowd every time he struck out. 
every big opportunity seemed to find him. At that point, I actually felt bad for him. I thought to, I was thinking, you know what? Can they put this man out of his misery and DFA him for his own good? Like, forget about how it would be nice for us, and it'd be nice for us as Mets fans. I don't have to watch him anymore. And then Buck basically starts him every game in this series. Buck Showalter has decided, you know what? I'm going to force feed Daniel Vogel back down everybody's throat, even though he's shown no sign of life. And don't give me his three-run home run on, on Saturday in the doubleheader. I don't want to hear about it. I mean, up until the Mets started scoring runs on Sunday, Daniel Vogelback was actually responsible for the only runs the Mets produced against Atlanta. But stop with that. They would that what would they down like 13-0 when he hit that three-run home run before Danny Mendick decided, ah, let's make this a football game. Yeah, it was 13 to 3 when he when he hit that home run. It was beautiful. 13 nothing when he hit the home run. Right. Well, yeah, he made it 13-3. Yeah. <laughs> it was beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful. Uh, listen, let's 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 sit here for one second and really dissect what the hell is going on with his roster that they still have the balls to throw out Daniel Vogel back at all. Like they haven't DFA'd him. Like and, and this is just a, a microcosm of what's wrong with this team. Is for some reason the the best example of someone who should not be playing at all, and yet he's been the most consistent player on this team. Him and Nimmo have played. They, they, he plays all the time. And well, he's don't, don't, been, don't, don't, don't compare the two. I'm I know not, Nimmo no. has not had a good year, and we'll no, get no, to no, him, but, but don't but, compare the two. Guys. No, but, but I'm saying he's a, he's a regular player. He's a, right. he's, a, he's a regular. Well, he's not only a regular player and is basically in the lineup every single day. They bat him fifth. <laughs> they, they bat him behind Pete Alonzo, who now is starting to not get pitched to very often because Pete's gotten hot and managers are going to say, why would we let Pete Alonzo beat us when Daniel Vogelback is sitting there on deck? It's, it's added insult to injury in a season that's been terrible. That's what it has. He's not the reason necessarily why the Mets are in the position that they're in. But I naively thought that once the trade deadline passed and once they started dumping players, I didn't obviously think they were going to dump everybody, but I certainly thought Mark Canna, Tommy Pham were going to be moved, that this would lead to them finally saying, you know what, enough of Daniel Vogelback. Just enough. We're going to DFA him or he's just going to sit on the bench, be a left-handed bat off the bench, and we're going to elevate Ronnie Mauricio and give him a look-see. And they haven't done that. And Brett Beatty's sitting there in AAA now, obviously, as we discussed on the last Rico. So you look at who's on the roster, and your options are D.H. Alvarez or Narvaez. That's one option, which they haven't done recently. Narvaez plays, Alvarez sits when Alvarez isn't catching. Your other option is just D.H. D.J. Stewart. The other option, which I've been starting to think about recently, even though he sucks, is play Tim LaCastro in the outfield and DH an injured Brandon Nimmo. Honestly, any option would be better than Vogelback. But Friday night, which I sat down, I had a frozen drink. I got my scorebook out. It's my last night on vacation. Everybody's passed out. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching the Mets leave 16 guys on base and score zero runs and get shut out by a team that just makes my blood boil. I can't, I can't stand the Braves. They, they are so far and away right now, the team I hate the most. 
that if we are forced to have to watch another Braves-Phillies postseason series, and last year, I got to be honest with you, I found myself rooting for the Braves because I hate the Phillies. I've turned. If if we are force-fed, we'll do a whole podcast about this, by the way, in October. Who should we root for? Like we did last year if the Mets got eliminated. But I lean towards, I'd root for anybody against the Braves. I would. The Braves are playing the Yankees this week. Let's go Yankees. I mean, geez. And then you look at Saturday. So Saturday was my drive home day from North Carolina. So I didn't score any of these games. I listened and sort of watched while I took breaks from driving. But the 21 to three game was just, (laughs) I I, I was thinking to myself, thank God I wasn't there. Thank God, like my vacation didn't end two days earlier. And I decided, you know, it'd be fun. Let's spend a Saturday afternoon at City Field. That was an unmitigated disaster. We almost forgot Denny Reyes was in our lives. We all remember Denny Reyes. I just thought we were never going to see him again. But boy, did we see him again. And then, of course, Danny Mendick with his 65 on our EFAS pitch lets the game get completely out of hand. And you could tell with this brave team. And Ozzy Albies, I, I guess there's a part of me that respects it. He admitted that he hates us. They hate us. They don't like us for whatever reason. It's New York. It's the Mets. They're still pissed at our colleague Sal for his uh, least is over last year. I don't know what the reason is, but they freaking hate us. And you could tell. You know what that ninth inning on Saturday in game one reminded me of? For, for any of you listening who was a Met and Jet fan, it reminded me of Belichick running up the score against us, which Bill has done many, many times over the years because he can Because he knows, hey, we're so much better. Not not anymore, but we are so much better than this crappy Jet team. That fourth quarter up by 30, F it. We're just going to run up the score. Which they did back in 2010, that Monday night game. It was either a Monday or a Thursday night game. It was a primetime game that Joe and I went to in Foxborough. 45-3 game. Bill just ran up the score. And I get the sense from the Braves. They looked at Danny Mendick on the mound and said, we do not care who is pitching. We want to destroy the New York Mets. And they did. And they did. And then the nightcap, we couldn't figure out Spencer Strider, which the Mets have had success against him in the past. Jose Quintana was fine. But think about it. You play three games. You score three runs in the three games. The three runs is a garbage time home run by the biggest POC on this Met team, Daniel Vogelback. And you get outscored 34 to 3. 34 to 3. <laughs> and Pete, I still came back from vacation and said, you know what I want to do? I want to go to Sunday night's game, Mets Braves. I just need to be in the building because I've missed this entire homestand being on vacation. I got to be there Sunday night. Kodai Senga's on the mound. Let's go. So I went to City Field, and let's all be honest. When Marcelo Zuna, who is the biggest douche walking, I mean, I, you have to cross your fingers, close your eyes, and hold your nose to root for such a scumbag like Marcelo Zuna. But I get it. It's sports. Sometimes you got to do that, right? He's wearing your uniform. What are you going to do? But Marcelo Zuna rips that bases-clearing double in the first inning. And I'm chuckling to myself. I'm chuckling like, holy crap, this is going to get worse. None of us thought that A, Kodai would settle down and pitch as well as he pitched. 
And none of us thought that even against Yanni Chirinos, the Mets would figure out a way to come back, tie the game, and eventually take the lead and hold on. None of us thought that. So Sunday night, I don't want to say it cleansed the palate because it really didn't. In a lot of ways, I'm still thoroughly embarrassed by what I witnessed this weekend. They still lost three out of four to Atlanta. They were lucky to win the Sunday night game. But it was stunning that after giving up the three runs in the first inning, A, Kodai pitched outstanding after that. And I give him a lot of credit for that. You know, after he gives up the double to Ozuna, he goes to work. He retired. Let me count it up. Two, five, eight, 11, 13 guys in a row and was efficient. He kept the pitch count reasonable to the point where he was able to get through the sixth inning, helped out by a tremendous defensive play by Pete Alonso, a great defensive play on that rip by Eddie Rosario. And the Met offense, I guess I'll give him a little bit of credit. They were very, very lucky, if we're all being honest. Yeah, Jeff McNeil had a big night. His second hit was the RBI single that made it 3-1. to one. But you go back to that fifth inning. You get the first two guys on base. Lindor grounds into what should be a double play ball. But I think Albies just didn't get over to second in time. So it turned into a fielder's choice, one-run scores. And then Chirinos loses the strike zone. When you issue back-to-back walks on nine pitches, that's bad enough with the bases loaded. When you do it against Daniel Vogelback and Omar Narvaez, that is a gift as I point to the sky from the baseball guys. So I'm glad they got it because they were able to tie the game and take the lead. But that is the definition of lucky. And then the luck continues. You get Viento strong a bases loaded walk against Colin McHugh. You get the odd catcher's interference with DJ Stewart at the plate. And then finally, just so there could be something impressive from that big inning, Rafael Ortega rips the two-run single, and the Mets put together the six-run fifth inning, and then hold on for dear life because it wasn't easy. After Senga comes out of the game after six, which I get, 107 pitches, you see a bullpen. That is going to need a major, major upgrade next season. Hartwig gives up the bomb to Sean Murphy. He gives up a double to Austin Riley. Brooks Raley gives up a home run to Matt Olson. That is still traveling. What an absolute, I think Carabas calls it a piss missile, which I don't really like the name piss missile, but for this Olson home run, I thought that was a proper description. So I give Carabas all the credit for that term. Gives up an absolute piss missile to Matt Olson. And when Drew Smith comes into the game with the tying run on first and the lead run at the plate, I see Sean Murphy hitting another two-run home run. That's what I see. And Drew gets him to fly out. And then Adam Adovino stunningly gives you the easiest one, two, three, ninth thing we've ever seen. And the Mets win a baseball game that I'm glad they won. Glad they won the game. But it really doesn't ease the ugliness of what this weekend was. They still got completely pummeled by their daddies. And the Atlanta Braves, for as long as I've understood baseball, for as long as realignment occurred in 1994, I'll go back to that. Because before that, in the few years I understood baseball before that, the Mets and Braves had, they were in different divisions. It didn't matter. But since they started sharing a division in 1994, they are our daddies. Yeah, and to to quote the great Joe Beningo, you can change the manager. You can change the stadiums, because they've had a few of them. You could change the Homer announcers. 
You can change the players. You can change whatever you want. The Braves continuously bitch slap us, and it's infuriating. I mean, what am I supposed to say as a fan? I mean, I, I can't even talk trash. I got great respect for the Braves. They're a hell of a team. I mean, they're, they're freaking loaded. The only guy I don't respect is Marcelo Zuna, which I'm sure Brave fans agree with me on. I don't think that's a dispute. They, they know they got to hold their nose to watch him play baseball, and it's fine. Like, we, we all kind of have to do it at one point with a player. But they are so loaded. And you know what I can't get over, Pete? A year ago at this time, the New York Mets were better than the Atlanta Braves. They had a better record. They were more successful against them in the head-to-head matchups that they had. It was close, don't get me wrong. But the Mets, in every tangible way, were better than the Atlanta Braves. Obviously, that started to change right around this time. It was probably right after Labor Day against that Dodgers series, which kind of bled into Labor Day weekend. After that, everything changed. But now, forget about the Braves being better. That's obvious. They're far better. They're in a different stratosphere. And it boggles my mind that a year ago, the Mets were not just competing with the Braves. They were slightly ahead of the Braves. That seems so foreign right now when you look at these two teams on the same field. Yeah, I mean, you, you ch- like you said, you change the names on the back of the jersey doesn't make a difference. They're, they're always the thorn in the side. And, I, dude, I think think there was a, a um, ESPN broadcast that I think I put up some stat about what the two records have been over the past two seasons. Uh, and the, the Braves are like a – they have like 75 losses. I forgot how, they, how many wins they have. But basically the, the Mets are like a, a 500. Yeah. Over the past and, – and, I just don't understand how a team – I do now they're so bad because they got rid of – they're playing scrubs right now. But 101 wins turned into this. It's so outrageous to think that that was even going to happen. How close they were to winning the division last year and the fall of grace that they are at right now, it's disgusting. And I turned the game on like you did. However – well, you were at the game. I turned the game on and I watched it not because I wanted to see them win. I wanted to see them get smoked again because I got to be honest – this is a bad taste in my mouth. You don't go out there and win the final game and be like, oh, I, we, we got a victory out of it. No, I'm sorry. Like, I need the Mets players. I need Steve Cohen. I need Billy Epler, Buck Showalter. I need them to be embarrassed by this. Because, again, I keep on going back to it. It's unacceptable. And I don't think they, they view it as that. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. If they're not... And we're not embarrassed now. I don't think a win on a Sunday night changes anything. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think losing the finale of that series would have changed much of being embarrassed. If you're not embarrassed by what happened Friday and Saturday, then you're never going to be embarrassed. And I'll tell you one thing that really should embarrass you. And I've, I've certainly experienced this with the other teams I root for. The Brave fan took over City Field. And that's a tough pill to swallow. It's one thing when the Yankee fan takes over City Field, their road trip is five minutes. You know what I mean? Like, 
they're our brothers and sisters. They live in the same area we live. So you can understand when the Yankee fan takes over City Field. You can even understand to a degree when the Philly fan takes over City Field. Drive up by 95. It's not that far away. It's a fun trip. Any excuse to get out of that rotten city of Philadelphia, like, I respect it. Where the hell did these Brave fans come from? Like, where did they come from? And they made a lot of noise, and they took over, and that's embarrassing. That is embarrassing. But the one thing I can't do, and I struggled with this a lot a couple of years ago with the Jets during their tank for Trevor Lawrence season, even though I know sometimes you're better off losing. I get it. I'm not arguing that. I cannot sit there watching my team and root for them to lose. Now, I can become immune to the losing and not have it bother me the way it normally would. There's no question. Like, I was able Saturday night as I'm driving home after getting swept by the Braves. I'm angry. I was, you know, the Braves continue to kick our asses, but it obviously didn't affect me the way it did last October. So you can kind of grow, at least I can, immune to the losses a little bit, but I can't sit there and say, hey, I want them to lose. Adam Adovino comes in ninth inning, one-run lead. I can't sit there rooting for Orlando Arcia to lead off with a double. I just, I can't get to that point, man. So you're telling me you've never hate-watched the Mets at all, in any capacity? Well, I I hate what I've seen, (laughs) and I hate individual players, but when Daniel Vogelback, who drives us all nuts, when Daniel Vogelback is up, with first and third, two outs in the third inning. Remember, the Mets had a little opportunity in the third. They're down three to one. This is Sunday's game. They have first and third, two out after Pete strikes out. I hate Daniel Vogelback. Like, if I'm ever going to boo, I'm going to boo when he strikes out with two more guys on base. But I still want him to hit the ball 500 feet. You know what I mean? So am I hate watching Daniel Vogelback? Yeah, I'm expecting the worst. I'm going to curse him out. But I want him to come through. Spoiler alert, he didn't. He grounded out the first base in case anybody forgot. No, I just, listen, I I respect it, but I think it pisses me off more when they do something positive versus a team where I'm like, they just got their asses kicked. And Sanga, listen, Sanga started off slow. He settled down. But to have that sixth run inning, that, that that's where they scored six runs in one inning. And just to me, it was just like, where the hell was this all weekend? Well, it, it wasn't anything they did. It was a yeah. very unimpressive six run inning. They scored <laughs> one, two, three runs on either bases loaded walks or catcher interferences. The only hit they came through with was the Ortega two run single. And Rafael Ortega has no shot to exist in our universe next year. He's one of those guys. He's here. He's filling out a roster spot. We will forget he ever played for the Met. He's Nori Aoki. That's what he is. No offense. Nori Aoki played for us how many years ago? I don't even remember. I don't freaking remember. I don't remember the year he was on the Mets. I just know he was. And there are guys like that. They fill out rosters in bad seasons, and then we forget about those bad seasons. Like, There have been a lot of bad years in the history of the Mets. I went through this last time. More years than not, the Mets are bad. If I just brought up 2012, like other than Johan's no-hitter, what would you remember about them sucking that year? Like you kind of forget. All those bad years just run together. You you don't remember much. So I remember one of the game, and you want to know why? I was there. (laughs) It was September. It was late September. It was football season started, and no one was there. But R.A. Dickey went for his 20th win of the season. 
Oh, that's right. That was the R.A. Dickey season. <laughs> that's a good let's point. Let's go. <laughs> all right, let's get to what I thought was really, really interesting. Because as you know, I think all this talk over the last few weeks about the Met locker room and the clubhouse, I think it's mostly BS. But I, I'm being clear when I say I think it's BS. I'm not in the locker room. I don't pretend to be a journalist. So I don't know what's actually happening in the Met locker room. But until there's any tangible evidence, until there are stories emerging, specifics, not generalities, then I just don't buy it. I think it's an excuse for why a team sucks. Because I think that when teams are really, really good, there are guys in the locker room that don't like each other. I think that there are probably a lot of bad stories that we never hear about on teams that win. And I think when teams lose and teams underachieve, it's very convenient, almost lazy, to just say, boy, that locker room's got an issue. So I appreciate that Mike Puma did some reporting. I do. Because I, I'm not definitively telling you there's no issue in the locker room. I'm just saying until we hear evidence of it, until there's like real reporting on it, it just doesn't mean anything to me. And it just seems like convenient kind of excuses for why this team was bad when we could do hours upon hours of Rico Bronia podcast explaining why they were bad, like going through the pitching that was bad, the lack of clutch hitting that was bad, the defense that was bad, the managerial moves that were bad. Now, why all of that is happening at the same time? <laughs> it's, it's cruel and unusual. So Mike Puma wrote, a complete article in which he talked to guys in the Met locker room and sources. So it was a good mix of guys on the record and then guys off the record. The sources saying this, sources saying that, to talk about the autopsy on why this season went bad. And I'll tell you what I got out of it. And I advise every Met fan to read it. Number one, there is an unnamed Met, and I love it because this is exactly what I would say. <laughs> That the whole idea of an issue in the locker room is the chicken and egg theory. That when things are going well, the locker room's great. There's no issues. When things are going bad, oh yeah, there's problems in the locker room. Quote, one Met called the whole idea of clubhouse chemistry a chicken or the egg proposition. Simply put, does good chemistry create winning or does winning create good chemistry? By all accounts, this group's chemistry wasn't necessarily flawed, but it failed to match the cohesion that developed last season. And then Puma brings up what Steve Gelbs alluded to about a week and a half ago, and that was the connection between Max Scherzer and Chris Bassett and how they shared a lot of information, and you always would see the pitchers talking with each other, and that that hasn't been the case this year, which we haven't seen. And maybe a lot of that has to do with the fact that you've got one pitcher in Kodai Senga, that has come over from Japan, who doesn't know the language particularly well yet. He's learning it. So to have him engrossed in big pitching conversations is unlikely. The other possibility is Verlander and Scherzer hate each other's guts, which we did hear about before that signing, that they weren't best of best of friends. That Max Scherzer, according to an unnamed Met, thinks Verlander's a diva, that Verlander is very to himself. That all may be true. And sure, it, it would be ideal to have every single pitcher concocting plans with each other, giving each other advice and 
making each guy better. I think what we saw last year, though, is probably the exception more than it is the rule. Like, just because you've got five guys that have the same job doesn't mean they're all going to be close with each other. So the lack of cohesion amongst Met pitchers being an issue this year as compared to last year, I I don't think that leads to Max Scherzer blowing every big lead he's handed. Do we think that? Do we think that Chris Bassett was so valuable that Max Scherzer had more balls last year instead of blowing every big lead he's handed? Do we think that? And it, I, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, is that rhetorical? I mean, I, I don't know because I, I hear these things and they're interesting to a degree, but what does it actually mean? Is my well, point. Like, what well, is that? Here, okay, so the pitchers aren't cohesive. What the hell does that mean? That's well, the excuse for why Max Scherzer, every time he was handed a lead, gave it right back. That's the reason why David Peterson went backwards, why Tyler McGill went backward. That's the reason? Uh, let, let, let's break that down for one second here and b- buy into my theory. Listen, Francisco Alvarez is a new catcher. He's trying to handle things as best as possible. You could see that Scherzer had his moments, whatever. But if you're telling me last year that those guys were talking every single outing, and kind of molding, motivating each other, seeing what they saw. And you're telling me that it didn't happen where Verlander and Scherzer weren't talking. And they listen, let's be serious here. No offense to Jeremy Hefner. He's not going to be able to tell Max Scherzer what to do. He's just not. He can't fix Max Scherzer. But if Justin Verlander, who is a professional, one of the best pitchers of all time, has a conversation with Scherzer, they could be on the same page throughout a game. That's more beneficial. If they're not, it's going to hurt, and, and and that maybe that is a difference. I think that it's ideal in a perfect world to have starting pitchers talking to each other all the time and having a great relationship. I don't think that defines why the starting pitching was so much worse this year than it was last year. It doesn't. Jose Quintana didn't pitch, and once he started pitching, it was too late. You know what I mean? Justin Verlander missed the first month of the season. Max Scherzer was not nearly as good this year as he was last year. Like, there are tangible reasons why the pitching went backwards. I'm not trying to dismiss this and say it didn't happen. Yeah, ideally, the pitching would have that same cohesion as it had a year ago. I don't think that necessarily explains why the pitching went backwards. I thought what Lindor said was actually very interesting. Now, one quick thing, actually, about Verlander. Verlander often complained about the Mets analytics department, which he deemed inferior to the one that served him in Houston. He's probably right. When I saw that, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, the Houston Astros are a borderline dynasty. They are. They took Justin Verlander when it appeared as if he was cooked six years ago. And resurrected his career. Long before I said anything about the Tampa Bay Rays, I used to say that about the Astros. And I'm not talking about stealing sides. I used to talk about their pitching. And I would say, hey, Joe, isn't it peculiar what's going on in Houston? What do you mean, bro? Look at all these pitchers. Justin Verlander looked cook. Ryan Presley was this. This guy was that. And all of a sudden, everything's working. That doesn't mean I ever thought the Astros were necessarily cheating with their pitchers. But they're doing something right. And if Justin Verlander is saying, hey, I think the Astros' analytics and the way they were used was far superior to what I'm seeing with the Mets, I trust him. 
I do. Why, why wouldn't I? The Astros, it's not as if Verlander said, well, I'll tell you, the, the Oakland A's analytics are kicking the Mets' asses. No, he's talking about the Astros. That's who we want to be. You know, we always hear about the Dodgers. I want to be the Astros. That's who I want to be when you look at their success. But let me get to Lindor. Because Lindor was one of the guys on the record here. Lindor's theory on why the Mets clubhouse chemistry might have seemed better last year. Oh, this is my favorite. He cited the benches clearing tension in games against the Nationals and Cardinals in April of 2022 as team bonding exercises. In the latter case, the Mets were incensed after the Cardinals first base coach Stubby Clapp tackled Pete Alonso from behind. Quote, it made us closer but we really haven't had anything like that this season, Lindor said. I'm not saying we should have some, but that is part of it. Okay, this one freaking annoys me to no end. And I appreciate Francisco for giving his opinion on this. How many times, Pete, have we said, hey, the Mets have to do something. The Mets have been drilled a million times. They have to do something, whether it's charging the mound when a guy gets hit, whether it's drilling Ronald Acuna, do something. And this manager, who deserves a lot of the blame for everything written in this Puma article, by the way, he's the freaking manager. You want to talk about issues in the locker room? Go to the manager. Maybe he is out of touch. Maybe he doesn't know how to handle a room anymore. If if you believe there are issues in the room, which I, I told you, I don't think it's just completely overrated, but point towards the manager then. But this point Lindor made, wait a second. This manager had many opportunities to very quietly say to a pitcher, go drill this mf go drill this guy. And he would say publicly, well, two wrongs don't make a right. Your best player, and in my opinion, the leader of the team in all likelihood, on the record has said, hey, maybe if we had an incident like last year, it would have made us closer. You had a million opportunities to do that this season. And they never did. And you know what? Of all the things that Puma cited in this article, that's the one that sticks with me the most. That's the one. Because you had a player on record say, hey, not that he used these terms. I'm obviously paraphrasing. Hey, maybe a brawl would have been good for us. Maybe it would have bonded us. And every time the Mets were drilled yet again this season, including one of their best players getting drilled and being out for a couple of weeks against your bitter rivals, you did nothing. So who do I blame for that? Obviously, you point towards the manager. You could point at any of the aces, supposed aces, who could have done something about it. You could look at any of the Met players that have been drilled 100 times that could have gone out there and danced, could have gone out there and charged them out. I brought that up a lot last year, that maybe the retaliation is the next time you get drilled, Go out and fight somebody. We know about how the 86 Mets love to do that. So that one I buy. I got to tell you, I buy that one. Now, maybe I'm being biased because we have talked about how that's frustrated us. So sometimes I'll always be perfectly honest about this. The way we feel is going to lead us towards having opinions after it's sort of confirmed by a player. So you and I, Pete, screaming, hey, the Mets should retaliate, and then hearing Lindor say, hey, maybe our chemistry would have been better if we had team bonding exercises, such as kicking another team's ass, only furthers that belief that we have. No, and it's true. It's, it, it, this team felt weird all season long, and 
it's because they're all individuals. There, there is no gelling. There's no nothing. The fundamentals are so have been thrown out all season long, and it's because no one's gelling. No one, no one's connecting. No one's. It just feels like every individual player has their moment, and that's about it. It's like okay, I'm gonna walk, get a base hit, strike out, get hit by a pitch, whatever happens. Next guy up, and there's 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 nothing that gels them. There's nothing that connects them, and it sucks. And not for nothing, I, I, I'm not trying to push back to it, but like Lindor has really grown on me as far as a leader in the clubhouse, as far as somebody who two years ago with the Rat Raccoon stuff, with the Javi Baez thumbs down nonsense, he has been vocal and he's been open and he hasn't shied away from anything. So i not saying that that's a good thing in a season where they've been so bad that, hey, at least some bright spot popped up but I, i'm at least happy that lindor has been a little bit more vocal in that stuff and lindor also speaking on the record in this article took responsibility for why this team has struggled he cited himself as one of the reasons why they're struggled how the number three hitter hasn't been productive enough so i appreciate that the other thing brought up was starling Marte training in the dominican republic and not rehabbing closer to met doctors I don't think that's a chemistry thing. I think that's more you want your team to know more about the recovery from an injury thing, which I buy because clearly Marte has been greatly affected by the double groin surgery from the offseason. Now, you could look at this as a positive and say, hey, that's a good sign that there's a reason why he's struggling this year. Maybe if he's healthy in 2024, he'll be productive. I can't count on that. I don't think any of us are confident about that, but it is better to know, hey, the reason why that guy is struggling is because he's hurt. Because it leads you to believe, well, then if he's healthy, he will be productive. He'll also be a year older, and that's certainly a major concern. I also think when you look at why a team has underachieved in such a major way, it is fair to look at every aspect of a team, every aspect. And if you want to include team chemistry and Are there enough leaders as one of the things you're looking at? That's fine. That's fine. I just think that it's kind of easy to diagnose what went wrong. It's easy. We could sit here all day talking about individual players that have not performed. And I think with each guy, there would be different reasons on why. I don't think every answer is the same. We just talked about Starling Marte. I think a big part of why he hasn't been productive this year is he's been hurt. Now we get to Jeff McNeil who's had an awful season. Why has Jeff McNeil gone from batting title to 250 hitter? Why? Why has Brandon Nimmo gone backwards? I think there are reasons to dive in on Brandon Nimmo. Have they changed his swing too much? Have they tried him to try to get him to be more aggressive, to hit the ball in the air way too much, where, yeah, the power's up, but the batting average is not only down, but his on base is down? I think there are reasons to explore why Nimmo has gone backwards, why Marte has gone backwards. The McNeil one, I'm not sure about. There are reasons why the pitching has been far worse than it was a year ago. And we haven't even brought up the Edwin Diaz injury, which we know has played a big role in things. I I don't think it's a waste to talk about chemistry. Like it should be brought up when you're trying to analyze why things went wrong, but it's way down the list. I'm sorry, it is. And I've always felt this way, that I think it can be greatly, greatly overrated. When things are great, 
We talk about how wonderful the chemistry is. Look at last year with this exact same team. Not exact same team. I know the pitchers are a little bit different. But look what we used to say a year ago or what was said about the chemistry a year ago. Oh, what a great room. Everyone pulls for each other. McNeil and Lindor, after choking each other out a year ago with the Rat Raccoon thing, now that BFFs is a double play combination, everyone's talking to each other. What a great room. Now you have a dreadful season for many, many reasons, and it's up. That room's flawed. The chemistry's a big problem. You know, last year, I remember after a Lindor at-bat or an Alonzo at-bat, you would see one of them, even after a strikeout, go immediately to the guy on deck or the guy in the hole and talk about what they saw. We saw that a lot last year. Hey, guess what? I've seen that a lot this year, too. I have. What the hell does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. It's great. Oh, great. They're communicating. Last year, the communicating was great because the Mets were the fifth best offense in the National League, whatever it was, or Major League Baseball. So it worked. Oh, it's great. Look look how they're communicating with each other. This is amazing. They've done the same thing this year. Except they're not producing. So I think we make too much of it. Sometimes things are simple. The team wasn't as good as we thought. The team was old, right? I think the age thing is a big deal. And we knew that coming into this season, but a lot of us, myself included, I'll raise my hand on it, kind of downplayed it. It's okay that they have a really, really old rotation. It's okay. It's all right that they're not that athletic and they're old. They're an old team. This is a young man's game. And a part of why... I've come around to what they decided to do a few weeks ago is because while the short-term return on it is atrocious and this is really bad baseball and even next year, I don't know what they're going to do with their rotation. I don't know how they replace the innings of potential Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander innings. But what I do know is they are trying to do what other teams around baseball are doing, which is getting younger and more athletic. Doesn't mean it's going to work. Doesn't mean all of the guys they got back are going to be stars. None of us have any idea. But I understand why they changed their approach. I get it. Now, I got a lot of emails at therecob at gmail.com that are very pissed off at our man Salakop. So I'm on, what the hell did Sal do? Why do I got people yelling at Lakata? He's this, he's that. He hates Pete Alonzo. What did I miss, Pete? Well, unfortunately, I was in Detroit traveling with the Giants, so I happened to not be there that day. So he went AWOL, or he went rogue and decided to go crazy. Uh, but no, I don't. I, I talked to Sal a little bit, and from what I understand, he just was making the point that the the locker room has toxicity in it, and he was making the case that someone's got to go um, to maybe change it up. And I think he pointed out that Pete Alonso would be – maybe the guy to do it. And it's not putting all the blame on Pete Alonso. It's more about like, hey, what value can you get? What value can you get for can you can you really trade a Francisco Lindor? Can you are you gonna get anything for Jeff McNeil or Brandon? Pete Alonso is the one guy that might actually bring you a ton of pieces back. So we we mentioned this briefly last week. If there's a trade out there for Pete Alonso that involves getting, I think your idea was Corbin Carroll and Zach Gowan or whatever it was. Obviously, that's not realistic. I don't want anybody sending us hate mail about it. 
then yeah, you know, anybody can be bought. Anybody can be traded for the right price. So I always want to try to be careful with you can never trade so-and-so. Everybody can be traded in the right deal. To answer your question, and of course, I'm just guessing because we don't actually know what's out there for individual players. No, I don't think there is some kind of return for Pete Alonzo that would get me or you or many Met fans to say, hey, that makes a lot of sense. Going back to the locker room thing, I do not believe the Mets' focus this season during the offseason should be fixing a locker room. It should be fixing the talent disparity. Now, Brandon Nimmo on the record in Puma's article said, I see no difference between this room and last year's room. That's one guy. You don't have to believe him. But I just don't and haven't heard, based on the reporters that are in the locker room, I'm not, Sal's not, you're not, we're not in the room. I don't know what the hell's actually going on in the locker room. I'm not going to lie to you and say I do. So you trust the reporting. And right now, the only reporting I've seen is, the pitchers didn't talk a lot to each other this year as compared to last year, which obviously has nothing to do with Pete Alonso. Does Pete Alonso and Francisco Lindor get along? I don't know. And by the way, I don't think it matters. There are 26 guys in a locker room. Not everybody's going to be best friends. Does any of us really think Lindor and McNeil are BFFs after choking each other two years ago? No. Yeah, but I think that's overrated. You got to look at the talent on a roster and you got to build it that way. Pete Alonso is a very, very special player. Pete Alonso is special in that he plays just about every day. He is an incredible slugger. He has gotten better and better defensively and he doesn't get enough credit for it. And that really, really frustrates me. And I don't know if it's he has a reputation, and sometimes when you have a reputation, nothing can break it. But you watch every inning. I watch every inning. I can say definitively, and I don't need analytics to back me up, even though they do, Pete Alonso's gotten better defensively. He has. I think that says something about a player. I think it says something about a player who continues to get better and better. I also look at him, and I see a guy that while he'll have down seasons like this year where he's only hitting two twenty five. He'll have up seasons where he hits 280. The one constant is he's going to hit a lot of home runs every single year. And I think there's a value to that. And I think that you and I have had a discussion that seemed meaningless and trivial over the last year. And I'll tell you why it really, really matters. We used to talk a lot about why his war was so low. Why does Pete Alonzo, we watch him every day. He's a fine base runner. He's gotten better defensively. He hits a ton of home runs. Why is his war so low? And we never understood it. I think that his value around Major League Baseball is not nearly as high as we believe it is. So what I mean by that is there is no trade out there that is going to get you hot and bothered. Doesn't mean teams are going to offer nothing for Pete, but the idea that you're going to get some kind of return. Oh, this is such a right got to make this deal. It's a fallacy. I think it's a fantasy. First of all, I'm not interested in trading Pete Alonso for prospects. I don't give a crap who the prospects are. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense timeline-wise. They want to win in a year or two? Pete Alonso's in the prime of his career, and I don't believe he's someone who's going to age badly. I forget who said it. I'm trying to remember if, I think it was actually on the Yankee broadcast. 
So I want to give, and it was Jeff Nelson. Now it's come back to me. Jeff Nelson and Michael Kay on the Yankee broadcast over the weekend were talking about the build of certain players. Maybe it wasn't Jeff Nelson, actually. Maybe it was somebody else. I don't remember the broadcast. Maybe it was the Met broadcast, for all I know. But they were talking about the build of certain ball players and how being too muscular is a bad thing. And one great example of that is Giancarlo Stanton. He's always hurt. He's an Adonis, but he's always hurt. Juan Gonzalez was an Adonis, always hurt. And then there are guys who are, don't appear to be in the greatest shape in the world. David Wells, CeCe Sabathia, Pete Alonzo. Not that Pete is like CeCe or David Wells. And they never get hurt. And the old joke was, well, you can't pull fat. Pete Alonzo, not that he's fat, has a track record early in his major league career of rarely getting hurt. And think about what his injuries were. He got hit by a pitch. That's far different than pulling a muscle, walking from one end of the locker room to the other. Hello, Giancarlo Stanton, who's in the greatest shape in the world. So I look at Pete as a reliable 40. He is a reliable 40 home run guy. And for whatever reason, the analytics, his war has not been very kind to him. So A, I don't think the trade return on Pete Alonso is so good that I have to say, yes, I want to do it. And then the other thing is, while he'll get paid in free agency, I don't think teams are going to go nuts for him. And that is my hypothesis on what's happening with Pete Alonso. Why were there rumblings that the Mets were thinking about trading him at the deadline? Why is it no longer a guarantee they're going to lock him up long term? It has nothing to do with him in the locker room. It has everything to do with how they value him. Pete Alonso is probably going to ask, and this would be my suggestion if I'm Pete, eight years, 250. That would be what I'd ask for. And I'm not sure if the Mets value him that way. And the Mets could have an arrogance or a confidence of, you know what? Go to free agency. Let's see how good you really get or how much you really get in free agency. Now, the Yankees played that game a year ago. I don't want to say it backfired because they kept Aaron Judge. But it backfired, right? Teams were falling all over for him. He came off in a monster season. They had to pay a lot more. I I think there's probably just a difference in opinion on what they should pay Pete. To me, when you don't have a salary cap and you've got an owner that's a billionaire, I'm not saying be stupid, but I'm saying I would be more aggressive with one of my own than someone I'm trying to sign from elsewhere. I'd be more aggressive with my own guy than a 40-year-old former Cy Young Award winner. I'd be more aggressive at potentially making a mistake because, of course, any contract could be a mistake. Look what happened with David. We all love David Wright. That contract was a disaster. But the difference was it was the Wilpons. So that disaster hamstrung them. No disaster hamstrung Steve Cohen, as we just saw. He'll just pay it off to get a prospect back. So I always lean towards, I'd rather make a misstep with my own guy than a misstep with some guy who I'm paying for what they did elsewhere. Juan Soto is a better player than Pete Alonso. I am not arguing that. Juan, I mean, they're different, but Juan Soto is a better hitter. I'd rather make a mistake with Pete than make a mistake with Juan Soto. Because the mistake you make with someone else is a guy who produced everything for somebody else. Juan Soto in 2019 with the Nationals don't mean a damn thing to me. 
Juan Soto with the Padres doesn't mean a day. It's all about what are you doing for me once I sign you to a contract? Well, when you're keeping your own guy, yeah, it's about what you're doing next. But you also have the memories that he did everything in his career with your team. So I know this will be an argument and a deeper discussion as time moves on, but I would absolutely get something done with Pete. I would prioritize it. I wouldn't risk it. But I do think that his value around baseball is far different than maybe we have for him. You agree with that, by the way, Pete? Yeah, I I think the Mets, now that you really you brought it up, I think the Mets are trying to pull the Aaron Judge where it's like, let's see what the market has out there for you and we'll sign you anyway. But I just don't like those games. I like to get it done and over with because I want to move on and, and rebuild this team the proper way that needs to be rebuilt. And I think that he starts with that. He's also a very, very difficult player to replace. Now think about it. How do you replace a guy who's a reliable 40 home run hitter? How do you do that? It's not easy. And I think you got to keep that in mind. That's a that's a very difficult thing to do if he's not on this team for whatever reason. I still remain hopeful and confident. I look, the, the whole crux of this thing is I don't buy this crap that the Mets have to change their roster based on clubhouse chemistry. I don't buy that. Yeah, it's just me. I know that there's going to be a lot of evaluation about this roster over the next few weeks and months. And sometimes we get bored of saying the obvious. And sometimes we always look for new reasons why things went bad. And clubhouse issues has always been kind of a go-to thing to go to. And I've never been like that. I look at the roster. I look at talent. And I say, I want the most talented guys on my team. The Mets have two guys in Pete Alonso and Francisco Lindor who are very good baseball players. I want them on my team moving forward. And the idea that they can't coexist unless there's new reporting is based on fantasy. Let's get to some of your emails, the Rico B at gmail.com. Richard Laconi writes, why am I here? I watched the destruction of the Mets 21 to three. At the time, I was applauding Buck's strategy of playing triple-A teams against the Braves to tire them out for the nightcap. I've tortured my son into now 19 games this season. As we drove down from Westchester today, he said, quote, I knew being a Mets fan was going to be tough, but man, 21-3 to is really terrible, Dad. He's eight. What have I done? Why are we here? We're also going to two of three versus the Pirates. So do you guys think this is considered cruel and unusual punishment? Sincerely, Rich. No, you're teaching him a life lesson. As disappointed as we all are about this season, as disappointed as I was about what happened to the Brooklyn Nets, I looked at it as a good opportunity for my oldest son, my youngest son doesn't understand things, to realize, hey, things don't come easy. All right? Oh, you thought it was just going to be easy to win an NBA championship? No. Oh, you thought it was going to be easy to win a World Series? No. You have to suffer the way I suffer. I mean, think about this, Hoff. I started watching the Mets in 1992. What a time to be alive. 92, 93, the strike of 94, celebrating second place under 595, 91 losses in 96. Like, if you're eight and you're watching bad baseball, welcome to our world. Yeah, but here's the thing, though, and I I, I respect where he comes from. 
we don't want to torture the kids. We don't want them to. We don't want. We want it to be better. And this is. And this is something. Let's be serious. We. I talked about this. I tell people all the time. I have a picture of my entire family wearing Mets gear, going to a baseball game. It was my two step kids, my wife, my infant at the time. He was like nine months old at the time. Everyone's rocking Mets, and it changed quickly because the Mets sucked after 2016. They did nothing, mm. and and it was easy for people to lean. There's another team in town that made the playoffs every year. They got Aaron Judge. It's easy to lean towards a winning team. Yeah, I tr- I've tr- I've tried really hard, and again, like you go from 101 wins to crap. It's it's tough to really sell that to kids. Now, I will say this much though: I did take uh, two of my sons uh, to uh, the Cubs game. Cup series. I took them to Tuesday and Wednesday, and they were into base. They love baseball. They right. were into baseball. They were into. It. My kid was was screaming and hollering and pumping up the crowd in the ninth inning when the Mets were about to to win that game on Wednesday. Look so like he, he's he's five years old. He's turned into a Mets fan kind of. Nice. Uh, but the, but the point is, it's like you just love baseball. So yes, of course you're gonna take your kids to these games. It's the experience. It's everything. It doesn't make a difference at the end of the day if they win or lose. It's also a great opportunity to buy cheap tickets because the tickets <laughs> right now in City Field are very, very cheap. Uh, Deborah writes, everyone keeps talking about David Stearns for team president next season. While he has a great reputation, what does he want? I'd love to see Theo Epstein. Surprise more people are not rallying for him. Your thoughts? I think the reason why nobody's rallying for Theo is not that he's, a, I mean, he's clearly the best candidate if he was a candidate out there. His reputation is sterling. We all know what he's accomplished. I don't think anybody believes he's interested in the job. So I think the reason why David Stearns has always been the go-to guy is because there's a real connection there. Grew up as a Met fan, uh, probably wants the gig. Theo Epstein has not shown any interest in wanting the gig. Um, Kenneth Hahn writes a dagger to my heart. Watching the recap of yesterday's game two on MLB.tv after that demoralizing first game, I didn't have time. I didn't have it in me to sit through another one. God bless you if you did. By the way, nice job, Quintana. Anyway, bottom of the third inning, one out, Nimmo on first, score is 0 0. Lindor lines out to Matt Olson, and Nimmo's tagged out. Double plays like this happen every day, but one of the freaking play by play guys for the Braves says, this to first base is a very Mets double play. His emphasis on the very Mets was like a dagger slowly pressed into my heart. I'm going to need help for the next few years. I heard this line. Jason Benetti was the announcer on Fox Saturday night. And I thought Saturday's broadcast on Fox was odd. It was not about the game. It was all about baseball and this new rule and that new rule. And what do you think of this? John Smoltz likes basketball better than baseball. Like it, it seemed as if the game was an afterthought, which maybe considering where the Mets are in the standings was the smart thing. I'm going to defend Benetti on that line. So what happened was when he says that was a very Mets-like double play, and then John quickly said, hey, look, there was nothing Nimmo could have done. I think Benetti meant unlucky. That's what I thought he meant, that the Mets have had a bad season. We all know that. and there are a lot of factors that lead to a bad season, as we were just discussing. One of those factors has been bad luck. One of them. Not, not that that's the ultimate reason. It certainly isn't. But they have not had a lot of luck this season, whether it's 
injuries early on, whether it's line outs that turn into double plays, they've had a lot of bad luck. And I thought what Benetti was saying on that double play was that was very Mets-like. Here's a ball that's hit decently well, and it turns into a double play. Isn't that so typical of the Mets? That's what I think Benetti meant, if you ask me. Uh, I Pichardo writes, what if David Stearns wants to trade Pete Alonso when he arrives? Would you trade Alonso for Soto? Both have one year left of control. I do think that while I'm going to give you my opinion on what the team should do, I gave my opinion before the trade deadline. They certainly didn't listen to me. You know, I, I didn't want to trade David Robertson. I didn't want to trade Max Scherzer. I didn't want to trade Justin Verlander. Now that they have, you certainly try to understand why, and your view starts to change once you see the players they got back. So I may disagree with trading Pete Alonso, but you have to let your baseball people make baseball decisions. And if David Stearns is taking over, you have to let David Stearns make decisions. So I may disagree with his decisions. And if his first decision is, let's trade Pete Alonso for prospects, I will scream about it. But I also think it's really important that the team president gets to make those decisions. I wouldn't want the owner necessarily stepping in and saying, hey, you know what? We love Pete. Can't do that. You have to let your baseball people make the baseball decisions. We do appreciate the emails. We'll get to a lot more of them, obviously, as the pods roll on during this meaningless regular season. We'll hear a lot from you, the RicoB at gmail.com. I do want to brag about one thing. One thing I'd like to brag about. Pete has an inquisitive look. I'm on my way to being right about something. Do you know what that is? Hmm. On your way to being right about something. On my way. Not there yet. On my way. I have no idea about the, about the Mets this season. Uh, this homestand. Oh, Prior yeah. to the series against the Cubs, I said to Pete, 10-game homestand, what's your prediction? And I gave you my prediction. I was very specific with my prediction. Pete said they're going to go 2-8. and eight. I said, nah, they... They're going to win some games. And I specifically said they will win two out of three against the Cubs. Ding. They will lose (laughs) three out of four to the Braves. Ding. Ding. (laughs) And then this is why I'm on my way. I'm not right yet. They'll win two out of three against the Pirates, and they will complete a five and five homestand. So we'll see if they can do that because they still have to win two out of three against the Pirates, which I know because they're so close in the standings. There are going to be many Met fans saying, I hope you're wrong. Let's go Pirates. They're better off losing. But they do have three games coming up against the Pittsburgh Pirates. And so far on this homestand, the Mets have won three games and they have lost four games. So Pete is officially wrong. They're not going two and eight. And I'm not officially right yet. That's for damn sure. But we'll see (laughs) if they can pull that off and go five and five. They're three and four so far on this 10-game homestand. And this game I went to Sunday night, is actually going to be the only game on this homestand I go to. So I will have finished the homestand with a perfect record. Obviously, the first uh, bunch of games I was on vacation, and then these games against the Pirates, this is my way of transitioning into a uh, a promotion. Monday, maybe later today, depending on when you're listening, Tiki and I will be live from Giants camp. So commuting from Giants camp to City Field for Mets Pirates is not really doable. And then on Tuesday... We'll be at Florham Park in New Jersey for Jets camp. And yes, commuting to City Field from Florham Park 
not really doable. And then they play an afternoon game on Wednesday. So one game on this homestand, and I'd like to say, yay, I was undefeated. 1-0, baby. Let's go. By the way, email me this, um, or you, I guess you could tweet at me about this as well, and Pete about this. Is anybody interested in Otani at City Field in two weeks? I get the sense that that could be an event, especially if Otani pitches in one of those games, which I know he's missing his next start. He's tired, but then he's scheduled to make a start next week. He would be in line to pitch on Sunday afternoon at City Field against the Mets. Is that a big deal? Because we've never seen it. So I don't know. I'm kind of pumped up for it. I already told my wife, I said, listen, I don't know which of those Met Angel games we're going to, but if Otani's pitching, I think we got to move the schedule around. I definitely want to see it. I'm pumped. Uh, because uh, this is his first experience City Field and won't, will not be his last. My one disappointment was while you were on vacation, there was a buzz from Ken Rosenthal saying that basically if for all the stuff that you heard about um, about next year, that Steve Cohen is definitely going to be in on Otani. And I hate that because all the moves he's made that have been big splashes, you didn't hear any rumors about. I, I, that would concern me i i'm not surprised that they would at least try to get the best player maybe we've ever seen i think it's i think it would be the opposite if you're not going after shohei otani you're not serious about winning that that's how i would look at it so whether you're the mets the yankees you every team should go after him i just don't think it's really believable that he's going to come here i'd love to be wrong about that I can't rule it out completely because I think we're all just trying to surmise what Shohei Otani wants. So, you know, we're all trying to collect the same data, which tells us, well, he likes the West Coast. We don't know if that's still true, but we surmise that. He wants to win. The Mets are coming off a terrible season. None of us really know, but I would not be confident that they're going to pull this one off. All right, so I'm going to start this now on the Rico Bronia. When the Angels come to town, I want City Field packed. Yeah. And I want as many Otani signs and I want cheers and I want support for the Mets and Otani. That no one there's no booze. I want Otani to get a, yeah. a real positive experience. Yeah. That worked out so well when the Nick fans <laughs> tried to do that with LeBron James, right? <laughs> we love you, LeBron. Oh, quickly about that, because it's a it's a great idea. You know when we did this, and I don't know if anyone remembers this. I think it was late 96, okay, 1996 season. There were a lot of rumors late in the year that during the offseason, the Giants were going to trade Barry Bonds, that they were going to move on from him. And I remember being a part of this, giving Barry Bonds a standing ovation, standing up and clapping for him during one of his at-bats because we all wanted him. I I wanted the Mets to go after Barry Bonds. And there were some rumors about it that the Mets had some interest and they ultimately re-signed Bernard Gilkey. <laughs> Look it up. Look it up. I don't know if anyone remembers this, but they were really hot for Barry Bonds and we gave him a, a big ovation when he came to Shea Stadium late in the 1996 season. Anyhow, more on that as time rolls on. We'll have time for it. We appreciate you listening and downloading. I'm back on the air all week with Tiki 2 o'clock on the fan. We'll have another Rico after the Pirates series is over. Thank you for listening and downloading another edition of Rico Brody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.